Welcome to the Mental Agility for Forensic Scientists podcast. I'm Jen Dillon, and I'm glad to be back with you all after a bit of a break. It was unexpected, like everything seems to be this year, and it's something that I struggled with. How could I not be releasing new episodes about mental agility during a year in which everyone needs a little help with that topic? And I got to say that there were lots of moments of doubt and shame on my end. You know, why could I not get motivated? Why can't I be of service? And in those moments, I knew that it was my mind throwing insults, but it was my job to stay mentally fit and know that I didn't have to believe them. The truth is that I was going through what everyone else was experiencing. And in that moment, what I needed was space and time to reflect and give myself some self-care. After all, you can't pour from an empty cup. So I turned inward to refill and sharpen my mental tools. I allowed myself this summer to slow down. Prior to the pandemic, every hour of every day was filled with some task. Life before March included me working a full-time job, teaching yoga five nights a week, teaching forensic science classes to law enforcement agencies, and of course, working on this podcast. No wonder I was ready to revel in a little bit of slowness. For much of those early stages, I felt mentally healthier than I had in years. I allowed myself time to create a beautiful garden in my backyard. This time was spent both physically moving while mentally reflecting. This allowed me time to grieve the loss of my grandmother, who I lost in May. She played such an important role in my life. The space gave me a chance to recognize the beauty in the relationship with my partner, who had patiently supported me while I spun all those plates. And now I could reward us both simply by setting boundaries and creating a space for us to be able to spend some more time together. In fact, we were married in our backyard at the end of the summer with our beautiful garden as the backdrop, product of the season's growth, both literally and figuratively. You see, slowing down allowed me to see the big picture, to get some clarity and insight. And sometimes in life, we move so fast, we can't see how far we've come or make proper decisions about where we even want to be going. It's important to note that I never stopped, but simply slowed the pace while still doing the internal work. We must maintain action in our life if we want to progress. Think about the health of a flowing river compared to a stagnant pond. There are always silver linings, even in a pandemic. If you have not given yourself an opportunity to slow down in a while, I encourage you to carve out some space for yourself. Just remember, the space is for internal reflection. It is a skill one must learn to keep your cup full so that you may share what is inside with others. My friends, I've done the work, and now it's time to get back to sharing with all of you. These next two episodes were recorded during the summer, but the topics are still very much relevant. Today's episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Jenka. You may have been introduced to his work if you took the fall meeting webinar on stress and wellness. Dr. J explains the differences between a wellness program and disease management and emphasizes that we all need to develop resources, have a plan and support system in place for our well-being. But we don't have to wait until we experience a critical incident to put these plans into action. He breaks down what happens physiologically and emotionally when we experience a traumatic event and explains what vicarious trauma is and how the technique of compartmentalization can be applied to prevent personalization of our work. Finally, Dr. J and I talk about workplace peer support programs and how we might be able to integrate them into a forensic setting. It's a great conversation, so let's jump right in. Welcome, Dr. Janka. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
It's my pleasure. We have talked a little bit on this podcast before about seeing someone in the behavioral sciences unit to discuss some of the experiences that we encounter in the job. And so can you just explain a little bit to the listeners about what it is that you do? So uh, right, right now I am in private practice. I work exclusively with uh, first responders, and, but I define first responders a little loosely. It's not just law enforcement. It's law enforcement. It's fire. It's EMS. It's dispatchers. And I would also include um, forensic scientists. Um, so, I, you know, I work with in that field. I do one-on-one therapy, group counseling. I'll do debriefings as well. And lately I've been doing a lot of um, kind of in-service classes, teaching teaching people about uh, coping skills, about stress management, about uh, working through trauma. And um, the probably the most fulfilling thing that I've been doing lately is, um, is helping people with wellness. And, and I know that wellness is often an overused word. And, uh, and I'm, I'm careful about how I use it because I was asked one time to come to work with the department and to speak on their wellness and their wellness day. And they said, uh, you know, all right, we want you to talk on these topics and we want you to talk about suicide. We want you to talk about alcohol abuse. We want to talk to you, talk to you about, um, you know, infidelity and conflict resolution. And I said, you know, I would be happy to address those issues, but just so you know, that's not wellness. That's disease management. <laughs> I had a, uh, uh, I had a, it was actually a pastor once. He told me, he's like, you know what, Rick, people don't plan to blow up their lives. They just don't plan not to. Okay. <laughs> wellness is helping people plan not to blow up their lives. And, you know, by teaching them coping skills and teaching them um, different resources so that they don't get to the point where they're making those poor decisions. And one of the things that we're seeing a lot more of in the, in that area is peer support teams. And that's one of the, the um, projects that I work on that I find very rewarding is helping departments build peer support teams so that people can get help and guidance. And, and no, they're not counselors. And if you want to know more about peer support teams, I'd be more happy to talk about that. But it's not a substitute for professional help, but it's a first step in getting assistance. And that can prevent a lot of problems. So I'm doing a lot of that lately. I'm working right now with uh, three or four different departments and helping them build their peer support teams and you know, serve as a consultant for them going forward. That's great. I actually do really want to talk about peer support programs. First, I want to ask you, though, describe to me a little bit just the scientific side of things, if you will. What is the definition of trauma? You know, you're going to find a lot of a lot of different definitions of trauma. Uh, so my uh, my dissertation, I, I worked with uh, police officers who had responded to critical incidents that involved death. So the pilot study was all firefighters. The dissertation research was all for all police officers. And I had a really hard time finding a good definition of trauma, a good definition of of critical incident. And a, uh, a lot of people will define it by providing examples. For example, uh, trauma is, you know, a life-threatening experience. Uh, trauma is, you know, having 
you know, being attacked or being raped or a, a car accident or something like that. Uh, I don't think that's good enough because uh, someone could be in a very violent car accident and it affects them completely differently than um, the next person. So does it mean that it was not trauma for that other person because it didn't quite fit the mold? So I don't like to define it based on the actual incident, but how it affects the person. And it, I would say that it was, um, you know, trauma is an incident that happens that affects that person's functioning in a negative way. And I, I know that's very loose and very general. And as a psychologist, that's not, you know, that's not enough for me to give a diagnosis of PTSD, but that's not what we're doing here right now. Mm -hmm. you know, if someone has an experience and, you know, for whatever reason, the way they personalize it, the way they interpret it, it, um, it carries with them and it affects their functioning and their relationships, then I would consider that to be trauma. I think that's why I always enjoy talking to you because that's what I wrote in my notes. It's not necessarily about the event, but how we interpret it and how we're affected by it and how do we make meaning out of it. And I think that's what we were just discussing, you know, before we started recording. I can handle difficult and challenging events as long as I can see the meaning in it mm -hmm. and, and make some sense out of it. You know, I just I just experienced um, my grandmother passed away a few days ago. And as sad as that is, um, you know, she was 91. She lived a great life. She, you know, it wasn't a huge surprise by any mean. But I had never sat at, at a deathbed before. You know, that was an experience that was new for me, except for, you know, I usually show up to death scenes at work. And so it was really um, a new experience. And it could probably be seen or felt as traumatizing to some people to go through that, where because I was finding so much meaning and it was so honorable for me to spend that time with her, like it was a beautiful experience for me. Nothing traumatic mm -hmm. about it. Until after she passed and then the medical examiner and their staff showed up and then it suddenly became just like work for me. And I suddenly, you know, all of those physical symptoms sort of kicked in and thank goodness I've got enough wellness training in my experience now. Mm -hmm. you know, I've got all these tools that I can pull out and I noticed the trigger right away and I excused myself and was like, you don't visually need to see this. This is, you know, stimuli you don't need. Yeah. And so I left the room and went and entertained myself with, you know, something completely separate. Like I, I went and talked to a family member about an unrelated topic and went outside um, to get away from it because I knew that that would be something that I would integrate and then relate to work. And then that would just become another link in my vicarious trauma. I call it the rabbit hole when I go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. 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 I understand. Yeah, it, one other thing that I did want to put out there is I just want to be clear that, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about PTSD here. For PTSD, for a diagnosis of PTSD, there are some very clear criteria that an individual needs to meet in order for it to be classified as PTSD and time frames and that sort of thing, too. Um, but people who experience trauma and it still has a negative effect on their lives, it, first of all, it doesn't always lead to PTSD. A lot of times it doesn't, but it still is traumatic for them. Um, so I just I just want to be clear. I don't want, you know, I, there's, a, there's a, a bit of controversy with PTSD and how it's defined and, you know, who 
who can say they have PTSD and that sort of thing. I just want to set that aside for a second because um, if, if we focus too much on the diagnosis and the criterion of it, then we miss the opportunity to address some of the effects that people experience from these incidents that, yeah, maybe it's not PTSD, but it still hurts and it still affects them in a negative way. And that needs to be addressed. Can you explain some of those physical symptoms, psychological, emotional symptoms that one's going to experience with a traumatic event? Yeah. So basically when, when an, when an incident happens and it's it's experienced as trauma, your your brain remembers what it feels like and it, what it feels like specifically from a physical sense, but you know also from from an emotional sense. And you know, think of uh, think of of anxiety. If I were to ask someone to describe what it feels like when they get anxious, they're going to tell me things like. Uh, in- increased heart rate. They're going to say their body temp increased. They're going to say their blood pressure increased. Some people will say they got tunnel vision. Um, I, for me, my ears get hot. I, 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 I don't think I'm crazy, but, but <laughs> no, you know, I when I, that I get too. Super, okay, all right. When I get super anxious, my ears get hot. Okay, um, you know, so it, it, anxiety is is that primarily a physiological process. And your, your brain remembers what it feels like as you're going through that incident. And the memory and the physical response, they get linked, okay? And as you go forward, when, you, when that thought pops up, it then triggers that physiological response. And, it, it, and sometimes it's not necessarily the thought that happens first. Sometimes it's, it's a trigger, like uh, if you are in a car accident and maybe you're hit by uh, a black Escalade, the next time you see a black Escalade, that might trigger those thoughts. So you're not thinking about it going into it, but you see the you see the um, the trigger, and then the thought pops up, and then that brings along that that physiological response. And then, can you also, since we're we're getting through our definitions here, can we speak specifically about vicarious trauma? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because. Uh, when I was doing my dissertation, as I said, it was uh, law enforcement officers who had responded to critical incidents that involved death. Um, what I had, what I asked the participants to do was provide me with a narrative of their incident, and then I went through after the fact and I coded it as you know which type of death they experienced. And uh, I remember sitting there and I was smoking a really nice cigar while I was. It was a, a Padron. Uh, and uh, I'm sitting there, and I and all of a sudden I got like I got really really depressed. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? I'm sitting in a cigar shop. I'm doing my research. I'm close to graduating. Like everything in life is going great. What what's going on here? And what I realized was I had just read three narratives in a row of officers who had responded to a child death where a uh, his his or her mother had rolled, felt fallen asleep while breastfeeding and rolled over and suffocated the baby. Mm-hmm. And my wife at that time, she had just given birth and she was breastfeeding. And what happened was I, I, I read those narratives and I personalized them. I put myself in their shoes and I experienced that, you know, in that moment as vicarious trauma. Now that's just, that's my example. You know, it, it, 
a lot of times people experience vicarious trauma and they're not necessarily putting themselves in the other person's shoes, but they, they go through that process of creating that narrative in their mind beyond simply what they're, what they're looking at. Maybe an example would be getting a skewed lens from reading sexual assault medical reports over and over and over again. Would that be an example of vicarious trauma? Yeah. We have a specific team that was working on sexual assault cases as we had our backlog. And I think a lot of lab systems do, right? Because so many states have these serious backlogs. And so as their job becomes to only work on sexual assault cases, I get it from a management side of things. It's it's a productivity efficiency type thing, but also from that standpoint of being, you know, you're not working the myriad of cases that you would normally be working, which is maybe a break from those sexual assaults. You know, it sounds terrible to say, but like, can I get a little B&E casework or something that's a little bit, you (laughs) know, just, (laughs) you know, an Xbox got stolen instead of somebody's Mm -hmm. life got so traumatically altered. And and you're reading these very um, graphic details all the time. And so I think that it has skewed the lens of many people's you know, viewpoints on life that this happens um, maybe more often than it does. I mean, I talked to all all of my scientist friends and we're like, you should see us in a parking lot. We think everyone's trying to kidnap us and throw us in the backseat of a car, you know, and I don't think that's normal. I don't think that that's, you know, what someone who, who works at the grocery store might be thinking. Yeah. So um, I, I like violent movies, you know, like dumb violent movies like The Expendables, right? Horrible movie, horrible acting, horrible screenplay, but just a lot of just blowing people up and, and stuff like that. It's easy to, for me to sit through a movie like that because I can very clearly compartmentalize and say, this is it's not real blood. Those aren't real. I mean, they're real actors, right? But they're not really dying. You know, uh, I have the benefit of being able to do that. You know, when I worked with law enforcement and uh, and I did wear a uniform for a little while, so I have some experience, you know, on, on the streets. And uh, you don't have that benefit because they are people that you're dealing with, you know, and you you struggle with that compartmentalizing. Although it's necessary, it's a lot harder when it is actual lives that, that you're dealing with or loss of lives. And on the flip side of that, I, I feel that I also experienced um, – I had a need to get really good at compartmentalizing so that crime scenes didn't affect me. And so I feel like I developed that as a tactic, a defense mechanism so that, you know, so that it it was less lifelike to me when I was there. And then I started compartmentalizing other things in my life that I didn't necessarily want to compartmentalize. So the, the compartmentalizing, uh, it's necessary for, for that type of job. I had a conversation once with a medical examiner and I asked her, I said, how, how can you do that? How can you, uh, how can you open up, you know, somebody's daughter like that? And then she says, she, so she, she replied, you know, doc, I'm not, I'm not opening up someone's daughter. I am looking at what she left behind. I'm looking at clues that she left behind. So, I mean, I, I would argue that's that's a way to compartmentalize. Is and that's one way that she had to look at it. It's sort of the the philosophical side of things. I often talk about my job and things that I see with 
my yoga teacher, and he, I always say, we see such horrible things. And he said to me once, it it struck me, we were in India and it was like my life-changing moment. I was like, this is why I had to come to India so that I could take in and absorb these things. He said, everything is just an experience. You see things, your mind makes them horrible. You know, and to me, I mean, that it just like blew me away when he said it because I then had like eight days at an ashram to sit and think about what that meant. And, and he's right. You know, we, we do see things and we, five people can walk into the room and see the same exact crime scene. One of them can let it affect them in a completely different way. It's just how we process them and how skilled we are. And I did scenes for years. I loved them. They were um, the reason why I really wanted to go into forensic science was the crime scene processing. I just thought it was a really interesting part of my job. And I did them for a really long time. But I think somewhere along the way, I I just, I don't know, I had my my youth about me and and I had a natural resiliency and then all of a sudden it went away and I got myself into this hole. That's when I met you Um, because I had taken a break from scenes for about six months and I was supposed to go back onto the team. And I realized then that, hey, taking a break, just hitting pause didn't fix me in any way. (laughs) Turns out you have to do the work. So Mm -hmm. I think that's how you and I established a relationship is is to start taking some of those tools that I was using in other areas of my life. You know, I was a practicing yogi and I was really happy in other areas of my life, but I just, for whatever reason, wasn't applying them to the job. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what let's talk about those peer groups, because I think that that's, that's just a really awesome program that I think, I just think that all labs should have one. So Can you tell me, I guess, before we get into peer groups, what are the tenets to a trauma-informed workplace? Like for for your management to understand that some of the things that you're dealing with are going to affect you. Well, I I guess, first of all, the the acknowledgement that it can be experienced as trauma. You know, some people are, are very good at compartmentalizing, sometimes too good. And I just want to, you mentioned that, so I want to, I want to, use that one for a second. Um, you know, compartmentalizing is something that is useful and necessary for the job. Um, but after the job, you have to train yourself on setting that aside. You can't compartmentalize throughout your whole life. You can't compartmentalize your relationships and your responses and those sorts of things. Things, um, you know, cynicism is another example. And I, and I can attest personally to, to acknowledging or to experiencing that one. Um, cynicism is, is important, right? You, you there's a, a to a certain extent it provides you some some uh, mental health, like some emotional protection. I guess is a better way to put it. Uh, for a law enforcement officer or a firefighter, it can actually provide some physical protection. You can't give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Your life could be in jeopardy if you do that, right? Um, so. You have to use that, but then you also have to know that you, you have to take it off once you leave the station or you leave the lab because you can't treat everyone like suspects. You can't treat everyone like victims. You, you have to be able to, to set that cynicism aside, set that compartmentalization aside so that you can engage in a healthy non-work uh, environment. 
And, you know, I, I think, I think that becomes more difficult over time. People struggle with taking that off. It's, um, I guess you could say analogous to like an officer who wears a vest on the job because it affords him or her some protection. When, once they leave, you don't see them out there mowing their grass with their vest on, you know, you don't <laughs> see them taking their kids to soccer practice, you know, wearing their, um, their body armor, they take it off. But those mental tools that we have on the job, we don't take those off when we leave. And that has an effect on us from a mental health perspective, like those other things would have on a, as a physical perspective. Police officers will often hang out with other police officers after work or ER staff mm-hmm. hangs out with, you know, people who understand because you, you sort mm-hmm. of, you know, the cynicism and this um, distorted worldview, maybe compassion fatigue, all of those things. It's sort of like, you know, I remember people used to be like, oh my God, you're a forensic scientist. Your job is so cool. Tell me all about it. And I'm like, I don't want mm-hmm. to talk to you about it. And mm-hmm. also when you ask me what's the craziest thing I've ever seen, when I tell you, you're either going to be completely freaked out or, you know, I've, I've yeah. like made people be like slowly walk away when this chick starts talking, mm-hmm. you know, it's not CSI, right? Like what they see on TV. Yeah. People tend to sort of get into a little bubble of other people that will understand because mm-hmm. it's. It's, it's maybe easier. And I don't know if that's the healthiest thing. You know, I'm thinking this in my head, like, oh, my boyfriend's a cop. Maybe. <laughs> Did I do that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, we understand each other. And I, I can come home and say I had a bad day and not want to talk about it. And he gets that. Um, or mm-hmm. he can also talk me through some of those things without me having to get into graphic detail about them. Mm-hmm. It's a catch-22. It is one of the one of the classes that I uh, have in my peer support program. Uh, the initial training that I have is um, a class on families, and depending on who I'm teaching, it's either like fire families or law enforcement families or dispatch families or whatever. But it, it's it's walking people through how to set boundaries so that you can get your emotional needs met outside the job without seeking it out in in unhealthy ways. And that involves conversations with loved ones on what can you talk about, what can't you talk about. Um, if there's something that your your spouse or partner can't address or can't handle, like they can't hear anything to do with kids, it just is too impactful on them. All right, well, then what other options? Is it okay for you to uh, to speak with someone else? Um, but And that is one of the things that I suggest is I encourage people to have friends outside of their industry, right? So they can get a break from the job, from uh, the things that they experience. But you bring up a really good point is you have the groupies where they want to hear the stories and, or they think they do. And, you know, they, they want to know all the, all the gritty stuff and you just have to give yourself permission to say no. I mean, it's, it sounds overly simplistic, but it really is that simple. It's just you have to tell yourself, I'm giving my permission, myself permission to say no. You know, if they want to know something and I don't really feel like talking about it, I'll just be real with them and say, I ain't, now's not a good time for me to talk about that. Okay. We'll talk about something else. Mm-hmm. I started to feel like it was 
traumatizing to me and they were using it for entertainment. So I actually started to feel like angst about it. Obviously they didn't mean, you know, they weren't cognizant yeah. of that at all. That causes you to question yourself too. You know, you, you share a situation that you experienced, that you personally experienced, right? So you can't, you can't take your response out of the picture. It just, it's just there. You share it with someone who doesn't have that, that experience, that perspective, and they, they see it as like no big deal or, you know, like, like someone got what's coming, got, got what they had coming to them and they make like a mockery of it or they minimize it. And then the other person sent back saying, well, what the hell's wrong with me? Why can't? Why can't I just push it aside like that? Why is it why is it affecting me like that and not them? So you that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Is that you know, sometimes it's it's healthier for you to not share those those situations. Yeah. Learning boundaries, I think, was was key. And being compassionate to myself about it, knowing that, you know, that that's a trigger for me that will send me down what I call my rabbit hole and I can climb back out, but why even go through all of that? So I just, you know, I found a polite way to say, cause it's usually got any good cases you're working on. And I might, you know, have some stellar case and it's like, well, it's not in the, I can only talk about it if it's in the media and it's not, you know, it's super top secret. Sorry. <laughs> and, and then they think, yeah. Ooh, they think that they got a little tidbit and really I just made something up and it's fine. And or if you're on vacation, you can have like a, like an alter ego that you have, like, you know, for a while I was a tie salesman for Windsor Knot Tie Company and we sold all kinds of uh, silk ties and knit ties and I just bored the heck out of people and they're like, man, your life sucks. I don't want to talk to you anymore. That's right. My boyfriend, who's the police officer, says he hangs drywall. <laughs> like, I wish you actually yeah. could. We have some work to be done in the house. <laughs> this is something that I have been experiencing with uh, COVID-19 going on. It's it's very interesting. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I I think that this is something that lab people are feeling right now. You know, we go to work and we work in a lab and we get trained to be cognizant that everything is a biohazard, right? So you you work a crime mm -hmm. scene and you're like, where I'm wearing gloves, I'm wearing booties, a lab coat, I've got everything I have to protect myself. And when I'm in this space, I know that I'm doing this to make myself safe. Mm -hmm. Well, then COVID-19 came along and it was like, everywhere you go don't touch this, don't do that, you know, don't touch your face. And I immediately tied it to the whole world is suddenly my job. And it was really weird. It was really weird, like the way that I made this connection. And I started to feel a little apprehensive. I mean, I think most people had anxiety in mid-March. I'm not saying only forensic scientists did, but I think because we work in this type of environment, I really took it to be like, well, the whole world is like a crime scene to me now, and I kind of can't get out of it. It was very interesting the way that my mind decided to make that connection. But I do know, you know, I, I've experienced enough of these moments in my life that it's just like a one little, I, I always imagine linking paper clips together. And it's like, I'm just linking another paper clip to this long yep. change, chain of experiences that I've had. And when you pull on one, all of them come with it. And I was like, well, I just, yeah. I just linked COVID-19 to my job. Yeah. It's very yep. interesting the way that the mind works. And it, again, it goes back to, you know, like what my teacher said, you're just experiencing something. It's, it's the way your mind is perceiving it that is making it mm -hmm. good, bad, or indifferent. But that was a trigger yeah. for me, right? I've learned to recognize those mm -hmm. things. So as soon as I made that connection, I was like, okay, you have got to actively work to get 
out of this. Like you have, I started having to employ all of the skills that I've learned along the way, whether Mm -hmm. it's deep breathing or, you know, uh, replacing negative thoughts with positive ones, reframing the situation. You know, we've, we've talked about all of those, those techniques. And I think that that's what, you know, that's what I hope to see kind of become more the norm in the workplace is that it shouldn't be on the employee to mm-hmm. be doing all of this work on themselves when it's something that's very often just a, a it's an occupational hazard, right? Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. We keep coming back to peer groups. So can you tell me mm-hmm. about <laughs> about the, the peer groups that you've worked on in the past and what you're working on now? So I, I've helped... Uh... I've helped with a number of peer uh, peer support groups. I've built peer support groups. Um, I uh, designed and launched a, a statewide uh, peer group, and currently work with a few other industries building their peer support group as well. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I like to stress that this is it's not a replacement for professional help. I'm not out there trying to set up programs so that people you know, won't go access mental health professionals. As a matter of fact, I involve mental health professionals in the programs that I start and they play a key role. Let's just be honest. A lot of, a lot of people in, in your profession, a lot of people in law enforcement and fire and and all that stuff aren't going to ask for help Mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons. I think for a very long time, the culture was not encouraging of reaching out and asking for help. Now we're seeing that change in certain industries, um, but it's not where it needs to be right now. So for an individual who would not ask to see a mental health professional, it's a bit easier for them to reach out to a peer, right? And still not easy all the time, but a bit easier. So I think it's definitely, uh, definitely helpful in that area. And the peer support persons, they're trained to listen. They're trained to build rapport. They're trained to support and to affirm the individual. And they're also trained to look for certain things. I don't give uh, peer support persons enough information to, to where they feel like they can diagnose mental health issues, but I do give them enough information where they can look for some red flags and then can say, you know, this man, this doesn't feel right. This seems like this is a bigger problem. I really think that you need to speak with someone. Can I help you set that up? So instead of the other person saying, I need to go see a mental health person, let me go hit Google and see if I could find one. They're talking to a peer that they trust. They've explained the situation and the peer says, you know what, I think I think that you seeing a, a professional will be helpful. Can I help you with that? And they have a list of resources to uh, refer their uh, their coworker to. I was suggesting to the crime scene team if we, if we had a crime scene peer support program, you know, maybe just with crime scene people, or maybe with all forensic scientists, so that it actually was someone that was your peer um, in in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't know, I don't know if a a trooper would really understand. I don't know. Mm -hmm. They probably would. It's in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, yeah, we can talk a little bit about, about that, but so it's different. Some departments, I mean, they do it differently. 
Um, the departments that have uh, multiple groups of employees, you know, like a state agency um, or, or county even, you know, for that matter, um, sometimes they will build a peer support program that will be able to offer services for uh, for each uh, employee group, like for fire, for police, for uh, crime scene investigators, for dispatch. Um, if you do that, you you have to be mindful and intentional about seeking out employees from those groups. And you you need to have the right amount. You know, if you have 50 employees in your employee group and you have one peer support person, that's not enough. You know, you, you need to you need the, the, the right amount and um, you need to be representative. And, you know, at the start of a peer support program, there's not always enough interest uh, to have that. So, you know, if, it, if that doesn't happen initially, then I'd say it has to be a goal working, for, working forward. I feel like we have an unofficial peer support program. When I would work scenes or um, handle difficult cases in the lab, I I had like a crew that I could go to that I knew would understand. For whatever reason, some people think that because I personally don't have children, that scenes with children don't affect me to the mm-hmm. same extent that it would affect someone who does have children. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that should be assumed by anyone um, that it would be better or worse for you, whether you do or you do not have children, right? Like you could just Mm -hmm. take it to all these extremes. It it doesn't make sense to me. We're all humans and we're seeing another human who has met an untimely demise. So Mm -hmm. that's just bottom line for me. But there were, there was a time where I went to like three children's scenes in a row and it really really was affecting me. And I didn't feel that many people would understand because they were like, Oh God, but at least it was you, you know, and not Mm -hmm. me. And that was the last thing that I needed to hear. So I would go to other people specifically who didn't have kids because they got it on the level that I got it, you know? Um, So I feel like that's probably happening in a lot of teams and a lot of lab systems, maybe, you know, other people who are working perhaps in a sexual assault team, they go to their other colleagues and and make mention like, hey, is it bothering you that you read the same thing day in and day out? Is it starting to affect you? It probably is happening organically. How can we as an employee get management buy-in without coming across as vulnerable? You know, like vulnerability is a liability in some management yeah. eyes. So do you have any tips for, you know, how how we as employees can get the ball rolling for either a peer support program or just any sort of this, this wellness training? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, so peer support programs are gaining a lot of steam right now. They're popping up all over the place and, uh, and they're seeing a lot of, a lot of success. So I'm having that conversation a lot less often. It's not so much, getting command on board with a peer support program. It's getting command on board for providing resources for a peer support program. <laughs> Money and time. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, this sounds manipulative and that's not my intent, but they have to see how it's going to benefit them, to be honest. 
yes. Do Am I sitting here saying command does not care about their employees? No, I am not saying that at all. I'm not saying that they don't acknowledge mental health issues, that they don't acknowledge that this stuff is experienced. These incidents are experienced as trauma to their employees. I'm not arguing that at all. But in the political nature of the industry that we work in, a lot of times the people who make the decision, they have to be convinced that this is going to benefit them in some way. You know, how, how, how can this benefit them? You know, this can improve employee morale. This can improve productivity. This it can improve conflict within the – reduce, rather, <laughs> conflict <laughs> with the workplace, uh, reduce turnover, lower uh, health care costs – you know, if you can if you can get them to, to believe that this is a benefit to them in that way, that can go a long way. And I, I wish I didn't have to say that. And I, and I know that's not the case in every department, but it isn't a lot. And, you know, if if that's what it takes then that that's what it takes. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't I don't care. I, I honestly don't care if command wants to build a peer support program solely because it makes them look good. <laughs> no, no problem here because you know what we're going to go out we're going to save lives regardless of what your motivation is for it right i agree i agree but it sounds like um developing a business model is 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 the sound way to go because i've experienced it when i was in my most um you know disturbed disengaged state of being stressed on the job i was lethargic at work and completely mm-hmm. disengaged i didn't interact with my coworkers had conflicts with coworkers avoidance of certain tasks i mean it's pretty easy to make a business model for an engaged employee is much more productive and that's kind of why i was motivated to to start this podcast and the mental agility program Uh, in general, where we provide training, because I definitely saw that I was down in a hole and needed to climb out. And I was like, hmm, wouldn't it be a lot easier if we just never got ourselves in that state to begin with? Maybe we should (laughs) work smarter, not harder, and keep us all at a healthy level to begin with. And again, I really strongly feel like it shouldn't be all on the employee to do that, and that we should be working together with management. And so that's, you know, kind of where this all came about is, is starting the conversation. There's a lot of people who feel the same things that I feel, um, experience the same things that I've experienced, but maybe they're not talking about it. And, yeah. you know, if I have a big mouth, I might as well use it is the way I thought. Yep. <laughs> might as well just I'm not acknowledging that you have a big mouth, I'm just saying. Yeah, you are. Yeah. It's okay. We talked about this. We talked about it. <laughs> But it was a way that I could, you know, take my experiences and make them mean something. You know, I keep coming back to that. That's the way that I integrate some of the trauma that I've experienced and and turn it around and make it make it worthwhile. So so yeah. I like that I like that you mentioned the business model. Um you can't just well, you can do whatever you want, but it doesn't work well when someone just says, Hey, let's form a peer support group and then they just start a peer support group. It takes planning and you have to pick the right people. You have to get command on board. You have to uh, write some guidelines and bylaws to assure confidentiality. And, um, and then you have to, you have to go out and sell it like you're selling a product, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but this is not one of those products. This isn't like a one-time deal. You're, you have to, you have to sell, you're selling a product 
that you want them to essentially keep buying. So that means it has to be a good product. So if you're saying this is going to be helpful, that this is going to be confidential, then you have to back that up and you have to pick the right people to be on the team to support that and to honor those, you know, those guidelines. And you have to give them the right training so they know how to actually handle situations with, with coworkers. Every, everything from, you know, it, you know, helping them work through trauma and find the right help to, you know, to process that to, you know, who do you hang out with outside of work? Because if you're a peer support person, you know, maybe it's not the best option for you to go, you know, knocking back all the beers after work with everyone, you know? Um, so talking about, you know, those boundaries and dual relationships and that sort of thing, that has to be part of the program too. And if you put all that together and you provide good training, then you have a product that people are going to buy into. They're going to believe it. They're going to see it's, um, it's benefits and it's going to be some, it's going to be long lasting. I know that there's a local agency that has a peer support program and I, I believe I might be wrong, but I believe that they have to qualify to be in the peer support program, not to be, not to be, you know, someone that's doing the talking, but like they have to have had experienced a critical stress incident to be, part of the program. And then once they get in, then they can get some, um, I think that they get some training and they can meet as a group and have, you know, I don't, I don't want to say share circle with, without the knowledge, but I don't know what they do. Um, you know, if they do debriefings or what they do, uh, and if there's a psychologist involved, I also don't know, but they, it's done on work time which I think is a really important piece because currently, um, at least my experience was if I wanted to go speak to someone, even if it was about work, I had to take my own time. And so yeah. I, I took my own time, I took my own car, and I drove an hour there and back to talk to someone about work. And that took a big commitment to me from me because mm-hmm. to, to do that, you're talking about meeting someone once a week, for a prolonged period of time. And not everyone has that time off that they can take from work. Plus it created additional stress because I was expected to keep up my casework. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't just knock off work and, and not be keeping up with your backlog anymore. So it's, that's the kind of stuff that I'm saying needs to be kind of embraced by management. Um, you know, I'm not saying that we should all be able to go and talk to someone whenever we want but, you know, and maybe in this new era of everything being done virtually, it would be a little bit easier to take a 45-minute break and speak to someone and not have to leave the lab, for example. Yeah. I don't know. I, are the programs that you help put together, um, is it something that someone can do on work time or is it it's, it's all after work or taking leave? Most of the departments um, are on board with peer support services being offered during company time, department time. Yeah, I think it's a critical component. Yeah, most most peer support persons are not paid. I only know of one department that actually pays the peer support persons uh, if they if they do anything anything outside of their scheduled time. Um, but yeah, most departments are on board with, you know, being able to get those uh, services while you're on the job. And uh, and I think that's a good sign is you have to 
you know, one of the steps in, in your team reaching out for help is good leadership is intentional about eliminating the barriers between their employees and the help they need. I think that that is a beautiful place to end things, unless there's something more you'd like to add. No, um, I think I could talk about this. Um, trauma is my specialty, so you know, <laughs> we could have five sessions talking about trauma, and I could totally get on all these soapboxes and stuff like that. Um, but no, I'm uh, I'm honored to, uh, to to play a role in um, in what you're doing. I think that um, I think uh, uh, scientists in your area are, I mean, they, they desperately need the help. You know, you go to school, you get all this training on how to handle procedures and how to do certain tests, but you don't get so much training in how to deal with the emotional effects of some of the stuff that you're going to see. Not at all. Not at all. That's what we're hoping to draw a little bit of attention to. So thanks for being a part mm-hmm. of that. And you are welcome Absolutely. to come back anytime, any topic. All right. I'd love to. Yeah. Maybe we'll have a, a Q&A with Dr. J. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for checking out today's episode. If you do have any questions for Dr. J, please feel free to reach out at jdillon4n6 at gmail.com. That's J-D-I-L-L-O-N-4N6 at gmail.com. And I'll make sure that I get those questions to Dr. J. We can address them in future episodes, and we hope to have Dr. J back on as a guest. So stay with us, stay safe, stay healthy, take care.